You know, I was, uh, I was thinking, uh, thank you so much for your prayers, and uh, guys, thank you for your blessing and your words uh, over me. It's such an encouragement to be here. I was thinking about how, um, you know, when I first came to this church, I'd say, you know, Jen and I were, um, I don't know if, if we could even say we were excited to come. We didn't really know what to expect. We just sensed that God was bringing us to this church, um, and I had no idea what was going to happen in my life and her life and our families and in this church, and the whole, my whole life got turned upside down in the best way possible through this. And so I'm just excited for the fact that God is doing that in each of our lives. Maybe some of you came here, you didn't know what to expect. Um, it's not a conventional sort of church building. Some of you came at the beginning too, not knowing what to expect, but just maybe a sense that you needed to be here. And my, my hope, my prayer, and my expectation, and I know it's reality in many cases, is that God has done way more in your life than you ever thought was going to happen walking through the doors uh, of that theater across the street, and so we're trusting him to continue to do that and do it more. We now have more seats, which is fantastic, so uh, we want to put bums in those, uh, but uh, that's not our job. That's the Lord's, and we just trust as we continue to love each other as a family and love him at the center that, that he'll do that. You know, this is one of those opportunities and moments. I think one of the unique blessings we have as a church is because we don't have a building, and so we are continually reminded, and especially at times where we had to literally move buildings, that the building is not the church. I mean, we say that, but we really know that because there's nothing holy by itself about these spaces, about these buildings. But what is holy is the Lord Christ who is with us and is always with his church. And that song we sang, you know, where you go, we will go. Where you stay, we will stay. You know, we will follow you. And so at a time like this, we're reminded more than ever that what makes the church the church is the head of the body, which is Jesus, in our midst. And wherever he is, he gathers people together around him, and though that becomes the church. The word originally used before the German word kirk, which meant place, was ecclesia. That's the Greek word in the New Testament, and it means the gathering of people. What a cool way to describe the church. It's not a specific locale. We're thankful that we have a specific locale to be, and we hope to be here uh, for a while and to continue to grow. But we trust the Lord, who is the head of this church, who gathers us together around him. That's what makes us the church. And we've been exploring for the last uh, just over a year the story of God constantly gathering his people to himself. And so hopefully this is a fresh encounter for you with the living God in this place. And we prayed that already this morning and before the service started, that that would be, that Jesus' presence would be so evident and visible and tangible to us as we gather in his name. And one of the things that we're exploring in God's story and the reason we're looking at the story of God or what we, you know, what the Bible is, is not a rule book, but it's a story, a true story of the relationship between God and his people. And the reason we're studying it is not just because that's what you do in church, but because as we read the story and, it, and as the, you know, any good story does, as it pulls us in, we start to realize this is my story too in that it begins to explain to me things about my life that I didn't really know. I think that's what I have found to be so true about God's stories. The more that I have read it to know him, the more I've known myself and things that I didn't understand about myself have become clear. And so that is the hope and the expectation that we have is that we know ourselves more as we know God. As we know his story, it starts to explain, you know, our story, both the past, the present, and the future. We began uh, the book of Hebrews a couple weeks ago, and if you remember, those of you that were here and if you weren't, what Tony said to us at that point was, 
This book of Hebrews is a book that looks back at the event that has changed everything for all of history. And he pointed out to us that in a sense, even history itself is divided, is split. The, the timeline of history is split around Jesus. B.C., before Christ, everything before Christ. A.D., Anno Domine, year of our Lord. In other words, every year after is the year of our Lord. That Jesus, in a sense, splits all of history in everything leading up to who he was, everything before Christ leading to Christ, everything from him, Anno Domine, year of our Lord. Everything that flows after is about him as well. And what Tony explained to us this morning is that he his person, his life, his death and resurrection is the event that has changed everything. It has changed all of history and it has changed your life and my life. And we were reminded of the fact that many ways we are looking for that thing that explains our past and shapes our future. And that we've understood that of all the places we might look, to understand our family history, to understand our job, our personality, our talents, what we think we were put on the earth for. Ultimately, the center of our life's understanding is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this book of Hebrews, in a sense, is a journey for us to look at that event and say, how is he the one who, has, who explains all of our past and shapes all of our present and our future? Now, one of the things that the life of Jesus explains to us is it puts his finger on something that we have a difficulty with as people, and that is the issue of closeness. Now, this is funny, right? Because when you sit in a theater, I remember when we first started meeting in a theater, I thought, how's this going to work? Because when, when I walk into a theater, I'm looking for the seat furthest away from anyone, right? Like I, and I'm looking to just sort of be entertained. I don't want to be, you know, good distance back from the front and away from everyone else. How's this going to work? Psychologically, we need the opposite to happen in a movie theater for church. And as Canadians, we have a particular issue with closeness, right? And you know, people, the old close talker thing, there's people who are close talkers, we're uncomfortable with that. And, and it's funny, like, if you ever travel in other countries, you notice the difference in our, in our own countries. Like, when you're walking down the street, it's polite not to look someone in the eye. It's polite not to make eye contact. You get in an elevator, you're going to look anywhere but, you know, so you're not going to turn to the person beside you and start chatting it up. They would start moving to the corner. If you, you're just supposed to stand here, look up, look at the side, look down. If there's mirrors, try not to make eye contact even through the mirrors. As Canadians, we have a problem with closeness. And, and what happens when you're, when you're not close to people, you're, you're distant from them. Um, you, you're, you're not familiar with them. So there, there are people that are unfamiliar to us. There's people that um, we are uninterested in. You're not close to someone. You're not really interested in who they are. They don't really have an impact on your life. You're not interested in it. They're unfamiliar, uninterested. For some people, we're unsure of just by the look of them. They make us feel a bit strange, and we're not sure. Hey, I don't, I don't think I would like that person. I'm not going to move close to that person because I'm unsure of them. Now, that's okay with strangers, I suppose, to be unfamiliar, uninterested, unsure. But there are people in our lives who aren't strangers, and we're not supposed to treat them like strangers, and yet we have that same feeling with them. There are people in your extended family, maybe friends, maybe even a spouse, maybe between parents and children, there is a distance. There's actually meant to be closeness, but actually what we feel is a distance. We maybe are 
unfamiliar with them. People and maybe some people in your extended family, you just don't know that well. Maybe there's people you're uninterested in. You don't care to really know too much about them despite the fact that they're in one sense supposed to be close to you. Other people in your family, your loved ones that you're unsure of. You're not sure if you want to get close to them. Maybe because they've hurt you in the past. Or perhaps even people that make you feel unworthy. They make you feel bad about yourself and so you feel unworthy and so you don't move close to them. So people who are meant to be close to us but with whom we are unfamiliar, uninterested, unsure, and even feeling unworthy. Now what happens in relationships where we have a distance between us and people? People we're meant to be, be close with but we actually feel unfamiliar with, uninterested, unsure, or unworthy. Two things happen to us that are supposed to happen in relationships but won't. We won't know their love and we won't be personally, positively affected by them. We're, we're not close enough to feel or know their love or for us to love them and we're not close enough to be affected by them. In fact, that's what we say when we're uninterested in someone is I don't, this person has no impact or bearing in my life. And sometimes when we have broken relationships that we're supposed to be close, we feel a distance and we say, well, this person has no bearing in my life or I don't want them to have an effect on my life, so I'm gonna distance myself. And when we're distanced from people, we're not close enough to be loved by them. We're not close enough to be affected by them. But think about this for a moment. I was trying to get an accurate number on the amount of money spent on psychologists and psychotherapy. And I looked at the US, they tend to have more stats, but the number's anywhere from like 10 to $80 billion a year. Now, if you think about, and I know just from my own experience and just talking with people as we're journeying together and trying to figure out uh, life together, what are the two things that people are looking for so much help with? Love in their relationships and a sense of personal transformation, right? Isn't that what we all want? We want love and we want to get rid of the old habits we can't get rid of. We want to become the people we are longing to be. And yet our distance in many of our relationships cuts us off from love and cuts others off from the ability to positively affect us and yet we cannot shake the desire to be loved and to be transformed. And perhaps the one we, that, that relationship that is most tragic where we were meant to feel a sense of closeness but we feel distance is God. That God is actually the one who has created us to be in relationship with him. And if you look at the opening pages of the Bible, the first two chapters describe an intimate closeness between God and the people he made. Very, in a sense, ordered, but very close, very natural. It says God walked with Adam and Eve. There was a sense of his friendship with them. There's a sense of them being in perfect peace and in perfect closeness with God. To know his love and to have their whole lives ordered and changed by his presence with them. And what's very interesting is as the story begins to turn and human beings began to give God the stiff arm, in a sense is what sin is, the nature, the bent that all of us have to say, I'm gonna do things my own way, I'm not gonna trust you. What happens is the relationship becomes fragmented and there is alienation from God. Instead of being close with him, there is a distance. And what you'll notice in the story is that over the pages and pages of the Old Testament, the distance grows. The problem is God had made a promise to his people that he would be with them. He had created them to be close with them. 
And so they were stuck now in this place of not being close enough to him to know his love and not being close enough to him to be transformed by him. And yet people still longing to be loved, longing to be transformed. And so God determined to keep his promises. I will be with you was his promise of love. You will reflect me was his promise of transformation. And I will keep those promises. And so what God did was he brought this group of people together, Israel, and he said, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to pledge my love for you. And here's how we're going to be close. In the desert, they set up this, they were a pe- kind of a nomadic people, and they set up this thing called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a tent. And the tent was basically the, the place, the locale where God's presence would be. But because what separated them now was the bent that human beings had to say, hey, we don't trust you, That hadn't gone away, and so there was still this distance. Eden couldn't come back. Paradise couldn't be brought back and everything forgotten. Why? Because God's love for them was so strong. And think about this. The stronger the love, the more grievous it is when that love is rejected. The more pure the love, the more tragic it is when the beloved says, I don't want your love. And so God was having a pure, white-hot love for his people who were constantly saying, we're not sure if we want your love. And so there was this distance between them, but God was determined to close that gap. And so what he did was he set up this tabernacle, and he said, I'm going to set up a group of people called priests. The priests are the people that are going to bring my people close to me. And so the priests had the role of bringing God's people towards God. And they had to do, there was an elaborate system of sacrifices, which we're going to get into next week. Why do, they, why do they have to sacrifice animals? What's all that about? If you've ever wondered, come back next week. But there was a system of it. And there was one that was called the high priest. And the high priest had a special role because in this tabernacle, there was like a general sort of common area and then it would move to uh, the holy place. And then within the holy place, there was this little small section called the holy of holies. And that's where the ark was. And that was where God's presence was said to dwell. And the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And it was by lot that they drew to be able to get to do that. So now one person would get to be close to God on behalf of the people. Now this was good because God was meeting with his people, but it was always through the high priest. And that only once a year. God had other leaders that he would bring, but they were always individuals, and the people were still always at a distance. And in fact, one of the things you notice is that many times the people would say, hey, we're too afraid of God. You go meet with them and tell us what he says. You you go on our behalf. We'll stand back here because we're unsure. We feel unworthy. We're unfamiliar, and some of us are even uninterested. So, so you go, do the holy things. The, that's what the priests do. They meet with God. We, the people, will stay out here. And so even though God had set up this system of his people being able to meet with him, the gap was never closed. And if you read the Old Testament and you come to the end of it, what you find is not, not closeness, but distance. And a group of people who were meant to know God's love, not close enough to know it, who were meant to be transformed by it, not actually becoming anything like they were intended to be, but but degenerating as a people. And the distance begins to grow. Even though there was this high priest, it was only one person 
once a year, an elderly man who would get the opportunity only by lot, the drawn straws, to even get to do that. That was the extent of God's closeness with his people. And so if you read that story, you know, hey, something has got to close this gap. This cannot possibly be the fulfillment of God's promise, I will be with you and you will reflect me. Because the average person was not close enough to know God's love or to be transformed by him. They were too unfamiliar, they were too uninterested, they were too unsure, and they were too unworthy to get close enough to him. It's no surprise then that as a people, they were in need of a different kind of system. They were still in need of a high priest, but not the one that they had. And see, you and I actually know that. We need something to close the gap between us and God. You know, it's so interesting in this city, I have a chance to talk to a lot of people just around, and like I said to you before, sometimes when they find out you're a pastor, conversation's over. Other times people are very intrigued. Well, what is that? Tell me about that. And story after story, and I know many of you have this story as well, that if you were, you were raised in the church, you went as a child, you had some sense of God, but still so much distance. And in fact, the church, which was supposed to be a place to bring you close to him, actually pushed you away. When I, when I was resigning from my job at uh, Care Operations, and people said, well, what are you doing, you know? Um, I, I'm going to become a minister of a church. I must have had about 25 conversations and they all went the exact same way, that story. Uh, you know what, I grew up in the church and I think I believe in God, but I, you know what, I couldn't take the church the way it was. What they were saying was, I have this sense of him, I know he's there. I don't totally know much about him. Unfamiliar. Some people now uninterested. Definitely unsure. Distance and nothing to close that gap. And so the story of the Old Testament is in a sense replaying itself now. And in Hebrews, it's no surprise then that one of the dominant names of Jesus that is repeated over and over through the whole book, and if you've been reading in your CBR the last couple weeks, you notice that, is that Jesus is our high priest. What does it mean that Jesus is the new high priest? I want to read this passage for you. This is a little bit of heavy lifting, okay? This is not narrative. This is not story. This is Hebrews. It's a dense book. If you've been reading it this week, sometimes you're going, what the monkey are they talking about? Like, I don't even understand. Well, listen, that's why we gather together to read the word of God together. Now, stay with me, okay, because this is so important. I'm reading from um, Hebrews 8, 1 to 3, and then 6 to 12. It'll be up on the screen there for you as well. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, not the tent that Israel had in the desert, set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, Jesus, also to have something to offer. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that's the old high priest, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. Just read that verse again. Superior, superior, better. Why? For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, I'll, I'll let the high priest go offer sacrifices for the people, no place would have been sought for another. In other words, the people would have been close with God. But God found fault with the people and said, he's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because why? Why wasn't the old covenant good? Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. And so this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jesus is the better high priest. What does it mean? What does it mean that that, that he has come and what he's doing now is superior and better to what Israel had before. Because what Israel had before was never enough. How could a person who was just as sinful as them go into the Holy of Holies once a year and meet with God and none of the rest of the people and they would be distant? The people were unworthy, they were unfamiliar, and they were uninterested. And it's so interesting that as Jesus comes now as the high priest those high priests were meant to try to bring the people to god jesus brought god to the people this high priest was not locked away in some little holy place doing some things with sacrifices and incense and the people around could just watch and hopefully live off of the raindrops that fell from him this high priest spent more of his time outside the temple than in it this high priest went right to the people. He was God come near. You see, the people could have never been brought to God the way they were. Why? Because they were unworthy. They had sin in their lives. They were unsure. They were afraid of God. They were unfamiliar. They had heard stories, but they didn't really know. And some of them, quite frankly, were totally uninterested. And to the unworthy the unsure, the unfamiliar, the uninterested, Jesus, the high priest, comes. So close that they didn't even know who they were having dinner with. That's how close God came. It was no longer a human trying to mediate, sinful though they were, trying to represent thousands and thousands of people. It was Jesus come near to the people. And if you read, as we have read through the Gospel of Luke, what do you see? Jesus going out into all the places going into the house of people that religious people had said were sinners, who didn't belong, who didn't deserve. Jesus was right in there saying, let's have dinner together. Let's talk about your life. God coming so close to them in every way, to those that felt unsure, unfamiliar. He taught them about God. They were unsure. They had all these strange images of who God was, and some of them had mixed other religions into it. It's kind of like the culture we live in. Everyone has a patchwork theology. You got a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of, uh, you know, pantheism, a little bit of New Age stuff cobbled together, and this is kind of what I believe in. Jesus says, let me tell you who God is to the unfamiliar, even to the uninterested who said, I'm not darkening the doors of a synagogue ever again. Jesus says, that's fine. God will come to you. Let me tell you what it means to have God with you. God did everything to close the gap, to close the distance between us and him through the perfect high priest, Jesus, that you and I needed. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has come to us 
like that. That's where the rest of this passage comes into. Jeremiah says, this is a new law. The old law was on tablets of stone. You know, the Ten Commandments and the 630-something laws that the Jewish people had to try to get close to him. It was never enough. They could have had a thousand laws. How were sinful people going to be in the presence of a holy God? How were people who were uninterested in the love of the Father going to know it? In Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to write the law on their hearts and on their minds. I'm going to put it in them. Inside them will be the desire to know me. And now it won't be someone saying, hey, I'll tell you about who God is. It says, because everyone will know me. Why? Because they will know me on the inside. They will know who I am. It says from the least to the greatest, meaning from the oldest to the youngest, not just an elderly man once a year in the Holy of Holies, but from the least to the greatest, from the oldest man to the youngest child, not just men, women too, not just people born of a certain lineage over a certain socioeconomic class, but everyone. Jesus himself coming near to the rich and the poor and even saying, hey, the ones who think they're in better rethink and the ones who think they don't belong at all, you need to come close. He elevated the status of women and children in a society that had so pressed them down. Why? Because the least to the greatest were going to know God. And then Jesus says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit because now the temple is you. You, the body, are the temple, the people. Why? Because the Holy Spirit now lives with you. It's the Holy Spirit given to us that speaks God's truth to our mind. It's the Holy Spirit that comes into our heart and testifies so that the law of God is not something out there, some rules that we try to live by. It is a relationship with the Spirit of Jesus that has come into our lives. And you know what happens when God comes close to us, friends? We who are unsure, unworthy, unfamiliar, even uninterested. We come close enough to know his love. And we come close enough to be changed by him. The two things that all of us are looking for. And let me tell you, even if you are in the uninterested camp, you'll never be able to shake Jesus, even if you don't believe in him, because you will always be looking for love and you will always be looking to be your better self. You cannot shake these two desires. It's, it's what makes us human beings. We crave relationship and we crave transformation. And you can look for it anyone else, but there's only one that if we get close enough to know his love, who also has a love strong enough to change us. As one person says, he loves us just as we are. He loves us too much to leave us as we are. That is God come near to us, close enough to know his love, but close enough to actually be changed and become the people we long to be. And you know what the Holy Spirit says to you and me in our hearts? God will never leave you alone, and God will never leave you alone. God will never leave you alone, and he'll never leave you alone. He loves you. He will never leave you. You don't have to walk alone. He didn't wind up the world or give you your life and set you down in the middle of it and say, okay, now go and do a good job with what I gave you. Come back to me if you need something. I'll check in every so often. Seagull management, we call it, right? I'll swoop in and poop on you if you're not doing a good job. So <laughs> many of us have had bosses like that, right? We don't see them until something's wrong. Many of us were taught that God was like that. God was only brought up when we were in trouble. 
Well, God wouldn't like that. God would be displeased with you. Don't offend God. God's mad at you. No, God says, I love you. Everything I'm doing in your life is because I want you to know my love. And for some of us that are uninterested or unsure or unworthy, we feel our heels digging in as he drags us towards himself. What is he doing? He wants to love us. He wants to bring us close enough because he says, I will never leave you alone. But he also says, I'll never leave you alone. I'm going to hound you until I have done in your life what I made you for. Until I have done it, I will never stop stirring the pot in your life. You can't escape it. He's been called the hound of heaven. The one who loves us so much, I'll never leave you alone, but I'll never leave you alone because I'm not close to being finished with you yet. That is a love that brings us so close to Noah's love and loves us too much to leave us the way we are. So I'll never leave you alone and I'm never leaving you alone. How do you respond to a love like that? You turn around. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Lori, can you help me? Oh no, stay there, stay there for a second. Okay, so suppose I know that Lori is here and I'm supposed to find her. And I turn around and now where am I? I'm looking, I'm looking for her. I'm, I'm trying to seek her out because where is she? But now come a little closer and stand right here. Okay, now I have to turn around and find Lori. Where is she? Ah! <laughs> You're right there. Thank you. <laughs> God is not someone we have to turn around and go searching through the dark for. He's not someone we have to say, oh, uh, you go find him and tell me what you see. That was before when God was separated by tabernacles and priests and holy of holies. Now if you feel a distance from God, it's not because he's not there. It's because you need to turn around. He is right there. If God will never leave us alone and God will never leave us alone, our response is to turn around and see him. So the word repentance means is to turn around, to change your direction and see him. That's what Jeremiah said. Now everyone will know me from the least to the greatest because I am right there with them. Now let me talk to some of you that are from a Catholic background. You do not need a priest or Mary to go to God on your behalf. You don't. Jesus is your high priest come to you. That's what he says. You will not need to say, know the Lord, because everyone will know me from the least to the greatest. Why? Because I will write it on their hearts and their minds. I will give them their, my spirit that is in them. You do not need a go-between. If your priest is doing a good job, he's pointing you to Jesus. He's helping you see your high priest. Now, Protestants, we look at that and say, oh, yeah, why, 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 what's with all the priests and Mary? You know what we've done? We take the Bible, and we put the Bible above Jesus as sort of our, somehow our go-between. And some of us, that's what it means. It's like, well, I don't understand that book, so I can't really know Jesus. I don't get it. I don't really get how it works. And we don't look in the scriptures to find Jesus. As my systematic theology prof says, the scriptures are the manger. 
the swaddling clothes that have within them Christ. Are we looking to the scriptures to find Jesus? They are not the end in themselves, taking this book and elevating it above Christ himself. He is the one revealed in it. We are meant to go to that. If your pastor or your priest or your quiet times are working, it's because they're bringing you to Jesus. You need to turn around and say, hey, everything that I'm doing in my life is to find the God who will never leave me alone and never leave me alone, who has come so close that he is right there. There is no more go-between because every one of us, from the least to the greatest, it doesn't matter what your education, there's gonna be some parts of the Bible you read and you're like, I don't get this, that's okay. Jesus, you're revealed in the pages of this book. Come to me, show me. Most of the people that loved you were illiterate in the first century. So this is not a barrier for me to know you because everyone will know me from the least to the greatest. And so if God will never leave you alone, and God will never leave you alone, you need to turn around and see him. And I've written a little prayer on the back of your bulletin. And I want you to, if you didn't get a bulletin, you grab one after. I want you to tear it off and put it somewhere. In your house, on your dashboard, in your mirror, on your forehead, wherever, on the forehead of someone you love, wherever you're going to see it regularly. And this is the prayer. Jesus, you are my high priest. You are God, come close to me. Forgive me for, that's turning around. Hey, whatever I've done, you will forgive me. I don't need to feel unworthy, therefore I can't come close to you because you are the one who forgives me. I don't need someone to forgive me before I can go to God. God forgives me. I need to go to him. Forgive me. I've sinned. And help me see God's great love for me. That is what the high priest does. He forgives our sins and he brings us near to God as he has come close to us. Now some of you I know are in that unfamiliar, even uninterested category. Do not give up. You won't be able to shake looking for love and looking for transformation. So look for it in the God who has come near. And maybe today is a fresh start for you to say, you know what, I've got to pick up that book again. I've got to start coming to church regularly again. Maybe I'll get into a home group, whatever it is. Any of these things are opportunities for you to turn around and see him. For those of you that have been feeling unworthy, we were talking about that in our men's retreat. Why is it that when we sin, we think, I gotta get my life back together before I turn to God in prayer? We don't get the gospel. The high priest is the one who forgives our sins, and his name is Jesus. And so when we are struggling, when we are feeling unworthy, the one we run to is our high priest. And for some of you that have been here, you know, we, we gathered as a, as a group of people to pray before the service. And one of the things that was on our hearts, I know th that we've been talking about is, we want this place to be a place where people see and know the Lord. Now, I know some of you have been looking for him and you say, I, I can't see, I can't see what others seem to see. I can't hear what others seem to hear. We have prayed for you that things will change in this place. Not because anything about this place, but as in God is doing a new thing, so don't give up. 
Some of you that are struggling with sins and unworthiness, don't give up. Keep running to your high priest. We have prayed that God will be doing a new work in our church because of his faithfulness, because God has done everything to come near to us. So I want to lead us in a prayer to Jesus, our high priest, and ask the worship team to come and lead us in response. Lord Jesus, we lift our eyes and our minds and our hearts to you. We thank you that any one of us from the least to the greatest can come to you because you have come to us. You have done everything to come near. And I pray for those that have been struggling to see you that maybe would say, I don't know if I've ever heard his voice. I don't know if I've ever seen God. I pray that you would do it in a new way that as we turn around, you would be right there. For those of us that feel unsure because maybe we, we felt hurt by you in the past or we feel unworthy because of our own junk, I pray that we would move closer to you and find you to be so faithful and so forgiving. And for those of us, God, that are just saying, yeah, we just want more, is that prayer we said, oh, God, we all our hearts, we pray for more. You have held nothing back from us. You have come close enough that we would know your love in new and fresh ways and close enough that we would be changed. And so we thank you that you are the God that never leaves us alone and you're the God that never leaves us alone. And I pray that that would be the testimony and the witness of every person who is a part of this church. God loves me so much that he never leaves me alone. And God loves me too much that he never leaves me alone. We thank you for the love and transformation promised to us in the only one who could deliver, Jesus, our high priest. And so we worship you today, Christ, and we thank you for all that you have done. In your name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. Anytime God does something new in the midst of his people, uh, especially through the Old Testament, he would say to them, consecrate yourself. And what that means for us now is to offer ourselves to God for the new things that he's doing. And so I just want to bless you. For some of you, been, you've been desperate for a new movement of God in your life. Maybe there's something that has been stuck that you are praying would be unmoved. Maybe for some of you, it is wanting to hear and know his voice again, or maybe for the first time. I just want to bless you with the hope and expectation of a God who is constantly moving and working and that this would be a movement, even if it's your first day ever at Upper Room, an introduction into something new that he is doing in your life. That's my blessing for you, for me, for this church. Thanks so much for coming and we'll see you outside. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>